Welcome, I am your host, and this is the Unanswered Questions Podcast. Hello everyone, and welcome to another episode of my new podcast, Unanswered Questions, where every week we will endeavour to discuss a mysterious unsolved case that has many lingering unanswered questions. So I hope you enjoy, and as always, leave me some feedback on what you think about the show, and rate it as well. Now on to the show. This week we'll be talking about the theft of racing horse, Sugar. Sugar. 3rd of March 1978 to February of 1983, was an Irish-bred, British-trained thoroughbred racehorse. After a very successful season in 1981, he was retired to the Ballymany Stud in County Kildare, Ireland. In 1983, he was stolen from the stud and a ransom of £2 million was demanded. It was not paid and negotiations were soon broken off by the thieves. In 1999, a supergrass, formerly in the Provisional Irish Republican Army, IRA, stated that they stole the horse. The IRA has never admitted to any role in the theft. The Aga Khan, Sugar's owner, sent the horse for training in Britain in 1979 and 1980. Sugar began his first season of racing in September of 1980 and ran two races that year, where he won one and came second in the other. In 1981, he ran in six races, winning five of them. In June that year, he won the 202nd Epson Derby by 10 lengths, the longest winning margin in the race's history. Three weeks later, he won the Irish Sweeps Derby by four lengths. A month after that, he won the King George VI and Queen Elizabeth Stakes by four lengths. In his final race of the year, he came in fourth, and the Aga Khan took the decision to retire him to stud in Ireland. After Sugar's Epson Derby win, the Aga Khan sold 40 shares in the horse, valuing it at £10 million. Retaining six shares, he created an owner's syndicate with the remaining 34 members. Sugar was stolen from the Aga Khan stud farm by an armed gang on the 8th of February of 1983. Negotiations were conducted with the thieves, but the gang broke off all communication after four days when the syndicate did not accept as true the proof provided that the horse was still alive. In 1999, Sheena Callaghan, a former member of the IRA published details of the theft and stated that it was an IRA operation to raise money for arms. He said that very soon after the theft, Sugar had panicked and damaged his leg, which led to him being killed by the gang. An investigation by the Sunday Telegraph concluded that the horse was shot four days after the theft. No arrests have ever been made in relation to the theft, and Sugar's body has never been recovered or identified. It is likely that the body was buried near, and I'm going to butcher this name, Ughasahilin near Ballinamore County Larytrim. In honour of Sugar, the Sugar Cup was inaugurated in 1999. His story has been made into two screen dramatisations, several books, and two documentaries. Now we get into the background and early training. Sugar was a thoroughbred bay colt with a white blaze, four white socks, and a wall blue eye. He was foiled on the 3rd of March 1978 at Shishun, the private stud of the Aga Khan IV, near the Curra Racehorse in County Kildare, Ireland. Sugar was served by great nephew, a British stallion whose wins included the Prix du Mulin and Prix Dollar in France in 1967. Great nephew's other prodigy included. Grundy, Miss Penny, and Tolmy. Sugar's dam was Shermin, a seventh generation descendant of Mumtaz Mahal, a horse that is described by the National Sporting Library as, and I quote, one of the most important broadmares of the 20th century. End quote. 
1978, the Aga Khan, the leader of Nazari Imalism, I'm so sorry if I get that name wrong, philanthropist and horse owner, announced that he would send some of his yearlings for training in England. For a trainer, he chose Michael Stout, who was based at Newmarket. Stout had a good year in 1978 and had trained the winners of the Oaks, Irish Oaks, and Yorkshire Oaks with Fair Salania. Sorry if I get that name wrong. And the Gold Cup with Shangamuzo. Again, I'm sorry I get that wrong. Shirga was sent into training with Stout in 1979 as the Aga Khan's second year of sending horses to England. According to Stout and Gishin Droyan, the manager of Aga Khan's Irish studs, Shirga was easy to break and had a good temperament. He responded very well to training, particularly in September of 1980 when the jockey Lister Piggott rode him in the run-up to Shirga's debut race. Now we're going to get into Shirga's racing career, and we're going to start off with the 1982 year old season. On the 19th of September 1980, Shirga ran his first race, the Chris Plate, with Piggott as his jockey. The race was open to two year old Colts and Girdlings over a 1 mile, 1.6 kilometer straight at Newbury. Listed as favourite with odds of 11 to 8, he kept in behind the leaders before opening up and winning by two and a half lengths. Richard Barillon, the racing correspondent for The Observer, thought Shirga's run was the best from a two-year-old that season. After the race, Stout said that the horse would run once more that year to gain experience before resting until the following year. Shirga's second race was the one-mile, 1.6-kilometer William Hill Footery Stakes at Doncaster, run on the 25th of October 1980. He was again ridden by Piggott with odds of 5-2 to two in a very experienced field of seven. Shirga sat behind the pace-setting leader for much of the race, and when the horse faded, the running was taken up by Belle de Fluter. Shirga challenged for the lead, but Bell Fluter pulled away and won by two and a half lengths. Shirga came in second. Following the race, Michael Seeley, the racing correspondent of the Times, thought Sugar's run was significant and that he was, and I quote, a magnificent stamp of a horse, end quote, whose odds of 25 to 1 for the following year's Derby were worth considering. Now we get into the 1981 three-year-old season. Over late 1980 and early 1981, Sugar filled out and was stronger by April 1981. Stout had decided that Sugar should run in that year's derby and planned the season accordingly. The first race to prepare him was a Guardian newspaper classic trial run at Sandown on the 25th of April 1981, where he was ridden by Walter Swinburne. In a nine-horse, one-and-a-quarter-mile, two-kilometer race, Sugar raised his pace after a mile and won by ten lengths. Barillon had written in his column before the race that at 25 to 1, the odds for Sugar to win the derby were excellent. After the win, he noted them shortening to 8 to 1, where the bet is still worth pressing. He continued, and I quote, If Sugar wins his next race at Chester, or the Ladbroke-Lingfield trial as easily, he will be down to less than 4 to 1. Surely this is the time to bet like men. End quote. At further training for the Derby, Stout decided that Sugar needed practice on left-hand cornered course. He selected Chester, where the Chester Vars was run on the 5th of May 1981. After keeping pace with the leaders with a half-mile to go, Swinburne urged Sugar to increase speed, and he did, overtaking the leaders and going clear to win by 12 lengths. On June 3rd of 1981, Sugar ran in the Derby, set over a one and a half mile, 2.4 kilometer course at the Ipsum Downs Racecourse in Surrey. The Derby is a Group 1 flat race open to three-year-old thoroughbred colts and fillies. After the top of the uphill straight start of the course, Sugar was well placed and moving through the other runners. At Tattenham Corner, the final bend of the course, Sugar took the front of the race and opened up a lead over the others. Commenting on the race, Peter Bromley informed listeners that there's only one horse in it, you need a telescope to see the rest, end quote. 
Swinburne eased off the pace with two furlongs to go and won by ten lengths. It was the largest winning margin of any Epson Derby, and John Mathis, the jockey of the second racehorse Glint of Gold, said that, and I quote, I thought I'd achieved my life's ambition, only then did I discover there was another horse on the horizon, end quote. In the light of Sugar's run of wins, particularly the Derby, Barrelin wrote that the horse was one of the finest he had seen. While out on the gallops on the 15th of June, Sugar threw his rider, ran through a hedge onto the road, and trotted along to the local village. He was spotted by a local resident and followed the horse until it stopped to graze on a hedge, and then led him back to the stables. Sugar was unharmed during the event, and Stout recalled, and I quote, It's very lucky nothing happened to him. There's a crossing there, and it's a difficult thing. End quote. By the time the Irish Derby was run at the Cora on the 27th of June 1981, Swinburne was suspended following an infringement at Royal Ascot, so Piggott returned to ride Sugar. At the halfway point in the race, Sugar was in third place, but increased his pace to take the lead with three furlongs to go. He slowed during the last furlong and won by four lengths. As the horse approached the line, Michael O'Hear, the commentator, informed viewers that, and I quote, He's winning it so easily. It's Sugar's first and the rest are nowhere. End quote. After the race, Pickett told reporters that he had no doubt that Sugar would win as the horse never struggled in the race. He also said that Sugar was one of the best horses he'd ever raced on. Following Sherger's Epson Derby win, a group of US horse owners had offered $40 million to syndicate the horse. The Aga Khan turned down the offer and instead decided to syndicate Sherger for £10 million at £250,000 for each of the 40 shares, a record price at that time. The Aga Khan kept six shares for himself and the others were sold individually to buyers from nine countries. The shareholders had the option each year of selecting a mare to be covered or of selling that option on. The stud fees were 60 to £80,000 per cover, which meant that shareholders could expect to make a profit from stud within four years. Sugar had a break of almost a month until he ran in the King George VI and Queen Elizabeth Diamond Stakes at Ascot on the 25th of July 1981. The race was slow paced to start and Sugar was boxed in by other horses, but found a way out by the time the leaders had reached the final straight and accelerated to win by four lengths. For Berylin, the race showed that Sugar was the best horse he had ever seen race. Michael Phillips, the racing correspondent for the Times, wrote that the win proved that Sugar is a cut above the average, but not exceptional. End quote. Phillips continued, that Sugar quote, failed to fill me with many more besides with the magic that was in the air after Ninjgi and Mill Reef had won the same race, end quote. The Aga Khan and Stout considered entering Sugar in the Prix de l'Arc de Triomphe, I'm sorry if I get that wrong, that autumn, but decided that he needed one more race to prepare. They entered him into what would be his final race, the St. Lurger Stakes at Doncaster on the 12th of September 1981, with Swinburne as the jockey. Ten days before the race, a story was published in the racing newspaper Sporting Life that Sugar had not been practicing well and had become mullish. Stout stated that the rumours were untrue, however, and that Sugar was running well in the race, although the soft ground was not to his liking, but on the final straight, when Swinburne tried to get him to accelerate to the front, the horse would not respond. Sugar came in fourth, 11 and a half lengths behind cut above, the winner. Surprised by the manner of the loss, Stout and the Aga Khan ran a series of tests on Sugar. All showed the horse was in good health, and he worked well in training after the race. Unwilling to risk the horse without knowing what had happened at the St. Lurger, the Aga Khan did not enter him in the Ark, and instead retired him to the Ballymini stud near the Kura. He later explained to a racing journalist, and I quote, 
He was just an exceptional athlete. All through the spring and summer, he completely dominated European racing in a very dramatic manner, and after he'd run so uncharacteristically in the St. Lurger, we knew something had gone wrong, but we didn't know what it was, so it was an easy decision to retire him before the arc. End quote. Now we get into his stud career. The Aga Khan turned down offers to put Sugar to stud in the US and instead chose to stand him at the Ballymini stud in Ireland. He arrived in October of 1981 and was paraded down the main street of Newbridge County Kildare. Milton Toby, the writer on Thoroughbred Racing and Queen Law, judges Sugar to have been a national hero in Ireland, one of the most recognisable sports personalities, horse or human, in Ireland. End quote. In 1982, his only rutting season, Sugar covered 44 mares from which 36 foals were produced, 17 colts and 19 fillies. Of these, three won group races and the most successful of his prodigy was Uthol. When sold as a windling between six months and a year, Uthol reached 325,000 guineas. He was sold a year later where he fetched 3.1 million guineas. In 1986, he won the, the Irish St. Ledger by five lengths. Toby considers that Sugar's prodigy were progeny were perhaps not a disappointing first crop, but certainly below expectations for a horse with Sugar's racing prowess. End quote. At the start of February 1983, Sugar's second stud season was about to begin, and he was in high demand and had a full book of 55 mares to cover. He was expected to earn £1 million for the season. Now we get into February 1983 onwards and the theft of Sugar. On the 8th of February 1983, at around 8.30pm, three men, all armed and wearing masks, entered the house of Jim Fitzgerald, the head groom at Balmany. They were, they were part of a group of at least six and possibly up to nine men. One of the men said to him, and I quote, We have come for Sugar. We want two million for him. End quote. And that's two million pounds, by the way. Fitzgerald said the men were not rough, although one of them who carried a pistol was very aggressive. Fitzgerald's family were locked into a room while he was taken at gunpoint out to Sugar's stable and was told to put the horse in the back of a horse box. After the horse box was driven away, Fitzgerald was told to lie on the floor of a van and his face was covered with a coat. He was driven around for four hours before being released into the village of Kilcock, approximately 20 miles or 32 kilometres from Belmany. He was told not to contact the Garda, Siochana, Gardi, the Irish police, or he and his family would be killed, but to wait for the gang to contact him. He was given the code phrase King Neptune, which the gang would use to identify themselves. The men did not say that they were from the IRA or give any other indication as to who they were, although one of them spoke with a Northern Irish accent and another seemed to be experienced with horses. Fitzgerald walked on to the next village and called his brother to pick him up. On arrival back at Balmany, he rang Gisselin Droyan to inform him of the theft and urge him not to call the police because of the threats that had been made. Droyan attempted to reach the Aga Khan in Switzerland to inform him, then rang Stan Cosgrove, Sugar's vet, who was also a shareholder. Cosgrove contacted a retired Irish Army Captain Sheen Berry, who was manager of the Irish Thoroughbred Breeders Association. Berry contacted Alan Dukes, a friend of his who was the serving Minister for Finance, who suggested that Berry speak to Michael Noonan, the Minister for Justice. Noonan and Dukes told him to call the Gardi. By 4am, Droyan had managed to contact the Aga Khan, who told him to phone the Gardi straight away. The force were then contacted, but it was eight hours after Sugar had been stolen, and any possible trail 
had already gone cold. Pretty much the way that this sounds, it sounds as if they were playing phone tag. One person called this person who called that person who called that person who said to contact the guardie. I don't know why you wouldn't just contact the guardie straight away and say, look, my horse has been stolen. I'm not quite sure. I mean, look, I understand the threats to your family's life. I can understand that, but it's better to contact the guardie. They can then protect your family, but I can understand some people are a little bit hesitant, especially when something of theirs has been stolen or kidnapped for ransom. They don't want that person harmed. They want it brought back to them in the best possible condition other than dead. So I can understand why there would be some sort of being really reprehensive about contacting the police. But then again, in this case, it kind of had the opposite effect because since everyone was so busy playing phone tag, all possible leads and trails of finding these guys was made moot at that point. The Aga Khan had several reasons for non-payment of the ransom, including that he was only one of 35 members and could not negotiate or pay on behalf of the others. He was unsure whether Shurgal would be returned even if the money was paid, and concerned that if the kidnapper's demands were met, it would make every high-value horse in Ireland a target for future thefts, which is very true. Because you don't want to set the precedence of, okay, we stole this horse, it's worth millions of dollars, so now every other horse will be up for grabs. The way I see it is you set a precedence of, if one horse is stolen, the ransom is paid, everybody else is going to go, well, hell, look what happened with Sugar. Someone stole him, got paid a lot of money for it. Well, let's just steal every other high-value horse and ransom it because we're guaranteed to get paid because of what happened with Sugar. So I can understand why Aga Khan was very reprehensive about paying for the ransom, and I'd probably be the same way myself. You don't want to set a dangerous precedence that could come back and bite you and every everybody else that owns a high-value horse in the ass. I can understand that very well. The shareholders were divided on the approach. Brian Sweeney, a veteran of the American horse racing industry, thought that, and I quote, If you ask a mother who's had a child that has been kidnapped if a ransom should be paid, I think the answer would be yes and quickly. End quote. Another shareholder, Lord Derby, disagreed and said, and I quote, If ransom money is paid for the horse, then there is a danger of other horses being kidnapped in the years to come, and that simply cannot be tolerated. End quote. I can understand and see both sides of the argument. It's like, well, if you talk to this person who's had someone that's been kidnapped, you pay the ransom to get the person back. Other people say, well, no, but if you do that, it sets a precedence, which means now that everyone else is going to get their horses stolen and want a ransom because of this case. So I can understand the predicament that everybody who was involved in this horse would have been and others, you know, one half would be like, well, let's just get the horse back, you know, no matter what happens. The other half is like, yeah, but if we do that, we're playing into the kidnapper's hands and we're setting a dangerous precedence that all other horses are now going to be up for grabs to be stolen and, and ransomed off. So I can see the predicament and the... I'm, I'm not really sure if I was in this situation, if I owned a horse and this happened to me, what I would do. Because on one hand, I'd be like, well, I want, this, I want the horse back. I'll pay whatever I have to pay. But then on the other hand, I'm like, but if I do that and I set this dangerous precedence then every other horse is going to be in trouble and every other horse is going to be up for grabs and then people are going to go well we can get paid we steal a horse and we ransom it off we'll get money for it so i can i can see the conundrum these guys were in and i don't know what i would do in if i was in these guys shoes i have absolutely no idea what i would do now we come to the first approach by the thieves the first phone call from the thieves was on the night Sugar was actually stolen. Fitzgerald was not back at Balmany by that time and had not had the chance to tell the news of the theft to anyone. The call was to Jeremy Maxwell, a horse trainer based in Northern Ireland. The caller demanded £40,000, although this figure was later raised to £52,000. Maxwell was told that the negotiations would only be with three British horse racing journalists, Derek Thompson and John Oaksey of ITV and Peter Campling from The Sun. The men were told 
well to be at the Europa Hotel in central Belfast by the Thursday evening. The Europa was known as the most bombed hotel in Europe after having suffered multiple bomb attacks during the Troubles. When the three sports journalists arrived at the Europa, they were contacted by phone and told to go to the Maxwell's house to await further calls. On orders from the police, Thompson kept the person talking for as long as possible, but the caller rang off at 80 seconds before the call could be traced. There were a series of calls to the Maxwell's house later that night, and at 1.30am, Thompson managed to keep the caller talking for over 90 seconds, which would have been enough to trace the call. He was told that the person who was doing the call intercepts had finished the shift at midnight and gone home. At 7am on the 12th of February, another call was put through the Maxwell's house, which said that things had gone wrong and that Sugar was dead. Although a committee put together by the syndicate to coordinate their response later considered that this was a hoax, Toby argues that as the call about the theft preceded Fitzgerald's return to Balmy, i.e. before anyone knew about the theft, and as the callers had used the code phrase King Neptune in their communications, it is more likely that the calls and the ensuing focus on the high-profile activity in Belfast were undertaken to distract the authorities from what was happening with Sugar elsewhere. Now we come to the second approach by the thieves. On the 9th of February, the thieves opened a second line of negotiation, contacting Balmany's stud directly and speaking to Drian. The call, which came in at 4.05pm, was short. Drian was not a fluent speaker of English and struggled to understand the Irish accent of the caller. The caller similarly had problems with Drian's heavy French pronunciation. 90 minutes later, the caller tried again, with Drian asking him to speak slowly. A demand of £2 million was made for the return of Sugar and for a contact number in France through which further negotiations could be made. Droyan provided the number of the Aga Khan's French office. The syndicate which owns Sugar brought in the risk and strategic con- consulting firm Control Risks to handle the negotiations. They negotiated from the Paris office with a series of telephone calls over four days. On Friday the 11th of February, the negotiators demanded proof that Sugar was still alive as there had been some speculation in the press that Sugar was dead. The thieves said that a representative of the syndicate should go to the Crofton Hotel in Dublin and ask for any messages from Johnny Logan, the name of an Irish singer. Stan Cosgrove went to the hotel and asked for any messages. Armed members of the Special Detective Unit, the Domestic Security Agency of the Gardaí, were present in an undercover role. No message was delivered and Cosgrove returned home after waiting. Shortly afterwards, the negotiators received a phone call from the thieves, angry at the presence of the police and threatening that if any members of the gang were captured or killed, the negotiators and police would be murdered in retribution. On Saturday the 12th of February, the thieves contacted the negotiators and said that proof had been left at the Rosanier Hotel. When this was picked up, it contained several Polaroid pictures showing Sugar. Some of the pictures showed the horse's head next to a copy of the Irish News, dated the 11th of February. Cosgrove saw the photograph and confirmed that it definitely was him, although he added it wasn't much proof that the horse was alive at that point. You'd want to get much more definitive evidence. If you'd have seen the complete horse, it would have been different, but this was just the head. End quote. In a telephone call from the thieves to the negotiators at 10.40pm on the 12th of February, it was explained that the syndicate were not satisfied with the pictures of the horse, which they explained did not constitute enough proof. The caller told the negotiators, if you're not satisfied, that's it. End quote. The call was ended and the thieves never made any further contact. The syndicate attempted to re-establish contact with the gang, but there was no response to newspaper requests to do so. Now we look into the negotiations. 
The Syndicate Committee put together a report for the full Syndicate which examined the possible motives behind the theft. They concluded that the theft of Sherger was either undertaken to create confusion and publicity rather than obtaining money, or that the negotiations were undertaken with naivety. They reached this conclusion after taking a number of factors into account. Many of the demands were physically impossible. I mean, the ransom demand included £100 notes, which did not exist. In one call at 5.45pm to Drion in Belmany, he was told to deliver the £2 million to Paris before noon the following day. In a call at 5pm, the Paris negotiators were told to get £2 million by the end of the night after the Paris and banks had closed. In another call, the negotiator in Paris was told to get agreement for a ransom, but told he should not contact anyone in Ireland despite some of the shareholders being there. It also became clear during the course of the negotiations that the gang thought that the, that the Aga Khan was the sole owner of Sherga. They had no knowledge of the other shareholders and did not take into account the complexity of liaising and organising all 35 shareholders into a position of agreement. Now we get into the police investigation. So, the initial police investigation was hindered by the eight-hour lapse before the crime was reported and by a local thoroughbred auction, which meant several horse boxes were travelling in the area. Leading the investigation was Chief Superintendent James Murphy, a highly experienced detective. In his first press conference, Murphy described how he was slightly concerned about the theft and told reporters that, I have no leads. His comment about a lack of leads was not truthful as Murphy withheld much information from the media including the police finding the magazine for a Steyr MPI-69 submachine gun which suggested a link to an IRA active service unit in South Armagh. Murphy had a strong Irish brogue, wore a trilby hat and had a self-infancing sense of humour. At one press conference he announced a clue, that is something we haven't got, end quote. Several people claiming to have paranormal powers contacted the Gardaí with their thoughts. Murphy reported that diviners, clairvoyants, and psychic persons, they're in three different categories. They must be running into the 50s now. End quote. During one press conference, six photographers turned up wearing similar trilbies to the policeman. The Times called him a stage Irishman. One reviewer of a documentary in 2004 called Murphy the most richly comic copper since Inspector Clouseau. End quote. After eight days with no progress, he was replaced as a public figure of the investigation, but continued to lead it. On 16th of February, a description of the horse box used by the thieves from a description given by Fitz Fitzgerald was released. It was either light green or light blue, with no working lights and no license plates. The huge police search of possible hiding places for Sugar by the Gardaí and the Irish Republic and the Royal Ulster Constabulary, RUC in Northern Ireland, found no trace of the horse or horse box, but several IRA caches of arms and explosives were uncovered, leading to the loss of several safe houses. Up to 70 detectives were working on the case at one point. Two weeks after Sugar was stolen, the, the police search was scaled down, although the investigation continued. Now we get into speculation hoaxes and the insurance. With no definite news of Sherger's whereabouts and with the Gardaí limiting the information they released to the press, the media took to speculation to cover the story. Barillon observes that in reporting the Sherger case, quote, the press speculation was remarkable for its enthusiasm and its inaccuracy over a long period of time, end quote. Such media claims included that Sherger had been stolen by Colonel Gaffaldi as part of a deal to supply arms to the IRA, that according to the tabloid newspaper Sunday Report, Sherger was spotted being ridden by the missing Lord Lou that a Middle Eastern horse breeder had stolen him for stud, and that the Mafia had undertaken the act to punish the Aga Khan over a previous sale of a horse which had gone badly. 
eight weeks after Sugar was stolen, Stan Cosgrove was approached by senior detectives within the Gardee who introduced him to Dennis Minogue, a horse trainer. Minogue claimed to have a contact within the IRA who'd shown him a photograph of Sugar and that he could help get Sugar released for a ransom of IR £80,000. The Gardee asked Cosgrove to assist them in a sting operation to lure the thieves out. Cosgrove agreed and on the 20th of July 1983, Detective Garda Martin Kinnerons assisted the operation. He put the money in the boot of his car in a remote village which Minogue was to collect once the horse had been released. The following day, Kinnerons found the boot of his car forced open and the money missing. Minogue had disappeared and the money was never recovered. A subsequent internal Gardaí inquiry dismissed Kinnerons from the force for breaching Gardaí regulations. In an interview in 2018, he reiterated his long-standing innocence and said, quote, When it all went wrong, everyone jumped to the high ground. They, the senior Gardaí officers, all denied that they had anything to do with the ransom. End quote. Sugar was insured through several different insurance companies. The Lloyds of London insurance brokers Hodgson McCready covered £3,625,000 of the total and added a theft clause to the policy. Other shareholders accountable for the £1.5 million worth of shares had insurance that did not include a theft clause. Cosgrove was one of the mortality-only insured members. Shareholders accounting for £3 million did not take out insurance. The Aga Khan was one of the uninsured members of the Syndicate. Cosgrove was insured with the Norwich Union, now part of Aviva, who refused to pay even when it became clear that Sugar was probably dead. The company's liability was £144,000. The 20 policies that included a theft clause were all settled in full in June of 1983, even though there was a question of whether there was a need to. Terry Hall, an animal insurance insurer with Lloyds of London, observes that while theft was clear-cut, the demand of a ransom meant that the action was considered extortion rather than theft, which meant the mortality and theft policies did not have to be paid out. Legal advice was sought by Lloyds of London, who were told that although it was a grey area, payment was advised. Now we get into the potential identification of the criminals. Police and intelligence sources considered the IRA as the most likely suspects behind the theft. During the 1980s, the Irish Republican movement followed the armour light and ballot box strategy in which electoral success was chased by Sinn Féin while an armed struggle was continued by the IRA. The strategy was expensive, requiring payments for arms and explosives for the IRA and for political activity, advertising and salaries for Sinn Féin. The annual budget for the movement was estimated at between £2 million and £5 million and it was always under financial pressure. In October of 1981, the IRA Army Council, the leadership group of the organisation, approved the kidnapping of Ben Dunn, then head of the chain of Dunn's stores. Dunn was released unharmed after a week. Both the Dunn family and the Gardee deny a ransom of £300,000 was paid. According to intelligence subsequently received by the intelligence sources after the success of the operation, it was decided to undertake another ransom through the kidnapping or theft, this time of Sugar. In 1999, Sean O'Callaghan, a former member of the IRA who'd been working within the organisation as a supergrass for the Gardee since 1980, published his autobiography. In it, he states that the plot to steal and ransom Sugar was devised by Kevin Malone, a leading IRA member who sat on the Army Council. Malone came up with the idea while serving time in Portalaus Prison. Malone was put in charge of a special operations unit with orders to raise several million pounds, and several IRA men were taken from under O'Callaghan's control in the IRA Southern command and put into Malone's unit. These included the IRA members Jerry Fitzgerald, Paul Stewart, Rab Butler and Nicky Kehoe. 
Two weeks after Sugar's kidnap, Jerry Fitzgerald told O'Callaghan that he had been involved in the theft and that Sugar had been killed early on in the process after the horse panicked and no one present could cope with him. In the process, the horse damaged his left leg and the decision was made to kill it. In his 1999 autobiography, O'Callaghan states that Sugar, quote, was killed within days of the theft, end quote. In an interview for RTE, the Irish broadcaster in 2004, he stated that Jerry Fitzgerald strongly suggested that Sugar had been killed within hours of his kidnap. The IRA then kept up a deception that the horse was still alive and in their care. Kevin O'Connor, a journalist with RTE, identifies three parts of the gang, a section to undertake high-profile activity in Belfast to focus media attention in the north, part one negotiating discreetly with the Aga Khan, and one part guarding the horse. According to O'Callaghan, in August of 1983, in an effort to raise the money that they failed to do with the Sugar theft, Fitzgerald and his group attempted to kidnap the businessman Galen Weston at his home in County Wicklow. The guardee had been forewarned and took over the house while Weston was in the UK. After a gun battle, Jerry Fitzgerald, Kehoe and three others were arrested. They received long prison sentences. O'Callaghan stated that essentially the same team that went to kidnap Sugar went to kidnap Galen Weston. End quote. No arrests have ever been made in relation to Sugar's theft. The IRA have never admitted any role in the theft or its aftermath. Malone and Kehoe deny any involvement in the events, and Toby raises a query over O'Callaghan's story, saying the IRA informant was, quote, a confessed informer whose life depending on his ability to wave a convincing web of lies without more evidence, O'Callaghan's story is just that. An interesting story. End quote. In 2008, a special investigation by the Sunday Telegraph obtained information from another IRA member who said that O'Callaghan had not been told the full story because the gang was so embarrassed by what happened. The story was that a vet that the the IRA had arranged to look after Sugar did not turn up because his wife threatened to leave him if he did. Once the IRA realised that the Aga Khan was not going to pay, the Army Council ordered the horse to be released. The extensive search by the Gardee hampered any release and Malone thought he was under close surveillance and that releasing the horse was too risky so he ordered that it should be killed. The IRA source told the newspaper that two men went into the stable where Sugar was being held. One carried a machine gun. Sugar was machine gunned to death. There was blood everywhere and the horse even slipped on its own blood. There was lots of cussing and swearing because the horse wouldn't die. It was a very bloody death. End quote. Now we get to the remains of the horse. So, Sugar's body has never been recovered or identified. Several sources, including O'Callaghan, the Sunday Telegraph, and the Observer, consider it likely that the body was buried near, and I'm going to butcher this name again, Agnasashilin, near Ballinamore County, Leitrim. O'Callaghan said that as far as he knew, the remains had been buried on the farm of an IRA veteran from the 1940s, and that it would be difficult to get permission to dig on the land. Ballinamore is a town of strong republicanism, once nicknamed the the Falls Road of the South, a reference to the Falls Road Belfast, a highly publican area during the Troubles. There have been several claims of equine skeletons being that of Sugar. Des Ledon, a specialist horse vet with knowledge of equine pathology, has assisted the Gardaí in several instances where a horse's remains may have been those of Sugar. He retains some strands of hair from Sugar's mane and tail, which he says may contain sufficient DNA to confirm an identification. Now we get into the legacy. So, in 1999, in honour of Sugar, the Sugar Cup was inaugurated at Goodwood Racecourse, in a format that put a European team of jockeys against one from the Middle East. The race was later moved to Ascot Racecourse, and it is a competition between four teams, Great Britain and Ireland, Europe, the rest of the world, and an all-woman team. The winners of the competition are presented with a trophy showing Sugar. This was donated by the Aga Khan. 
On the 20th anniversary of Sherga's Derby win, a bronze statue to the horse was presented to the winning jockey. A statue of Sherga stands in the grounds of Gilton Stud, one of the Aga Khan's Irish stud farms. The story of Sherga's theft was made into a television play with Stephen Ray and Gary Waldhorn, broadcast in March of 1986 as part of the BBC's Screen 2 anthology series. The play was based on the few facts known, plus a backstory described as plausible by Hugh Herbert, reviewing for The Guardian. The theft was also dramatised as the film Sugar, directed by Dennis Lewiston and starring Ian Holm and Mickey Rourke. There have been two television documentaries, Who Kidnapped Sherga, broadcast on RTE in March of 2004, and Searching for Sherga, broadcast on BBC One in June of 2018. With that, this case remains open, but with many unanswered questions, it still remains unanswered. Please rate the show and let me know what you guys think about this and the many other cases I've covered. You can follow me on all major social media platforms, YouTube, BitChute, Dailymotion. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram. Links are all down below in the description. If you have a case you'd like me to have a look at or cover, don't hesitate to send me a message. I'm your host and this has been the Unanswered Questions Podcast. Until next time. Next on Unanswered Questions, The Mummy's Curse, which is a curse alleged to be cast upon anyone who disturbs the mummy of an ancient Egyptian, especially a pharaoh. This curse, which does not differentiate between thieves and archaeologists, is claimed to have caused bad luck, illness, or death. 